Good evening, everyone. So uh, thank you for coming tonight. This is, a, this is great. I'm so glad that you've come to hear this really, really important uh, research that Richard Rothstein has been doing about the racist history of housing policy in the United States. Um, I'm Stephen Buss. I'm the lead organizer with Mission Yimby, and, uh, which is an outshoot of Yes in My Backyard, San Francisco Yimby. Um, <laughs> thank you. Good, glad we have supporters. Um, so uh, let's get started. So as much as I would like to introduce Richard Rothstein, because he has made, uh, his book has made such an in, a, a huge impact on the activism that I do inside of Yimby, um, I'm actually going to introduce Sam Moss, and then he'll introduce Mr. Rothstein. So Sam Moss is the executive director of Mission Housing Development Corporation. It's one of the largest nonprofit housing organizations in San Francisco. Mission Housing creates and preserves high-quality, affordable housing for residents of low and moderate incomes in the Mission District and the rest of San Francisco. They provide about uh, they provide housing for some 3,000 San Franciscans across 35 different buildings. They're currently developing a thousand new affordable housing units, a thousand new affordable uh, rental units. Sam Moss is a trusted friend and mentor of mine, and he has experienced firsthand the kinds of disinvestment and uh, racist policies from the federal government that Richard describes in his book. So uh, please welcome uh, Sam Moss. Good evening, everyone. Uh, and before I get going, can we actually get a round of applause for Stephen for putting this together? It's pretty awesome. These, uh, these events don't, uh, don't host and run themselves. And uh, you know, thank you to him and also the Brava Theater for, for hosting. This is just a beautiful space. Okay, so I'm Sam Moss, as Stephen said, the Executive Director of Mission Housing. Um, and you know, the reason why we're all here. Uh, you know, Richard Rothstein has a long and distinguished resume. You know, but what brings us here today is his incredible book, The Color of Law a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. In it, he lays out in painful, irrefutable detail the history of state-sponsored residential segregation. Racial segregation is present in every met metropolitan city of America, every single one. It corrupts our criminal justice system, it exacerbates inequality, and it produces large achievement gaps between white and African-American children. And America has taken no steps at all, really, to desegregate its neighborhoods. We are hobbled by a national myth that residential segregation is something that just kind of happened, the result of private discrimination or personal choices. The cover of law demonstrates, however, that residential segregation was created deliberately by government policy in mid-20th century. America pursued policies and that openly subsidized whites-only suburbanization, keeping out African-American families. We must see this history for what it is and what we are left with today. By examining the history of our housing policy, we can see how our current laws exist, in what context they are, and expose the original content. And it's through understanding this legacy that we can change it. And when I began as the executive director at Mission Housing, I uh, naively assumed that we would be able to build the type of high-quality apartment buildings we build in the mission everywhere, you know, maybe even the sunset. And uh, I learned quickly that that uh, was not even legal. 
the racism embedded in our zoning laws, was, was the way it was laid out was irrefutable, and I just couldn't understand why it was like that. And it wasn't until I read Richard's book that I understand that you know, this, was, this is on purpose. We have done this to ourselves. And now that we understand what has happened and why we're here, I want every single person here to think to themselves, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with the knowledge that you have and that you'll be given tonight? What are you going to do tomorrow to reverse and correct the atrocities that we've inflicted on other communities? It's up to all of us to work together to make each and every neighborhood one of inclusion. It's up to us to take this message to as many people as possible. It's up to us to ensure that we create equitable and justice in all of our communities. It's up to us to change our cities for the better. And with that, I'd like to welcome Richard Rothstein. Thank you, Stephen, Sam, Laura, and all of you in the Mission NIMBY for inviting me here this evening to share this um, history with you and to engage in a conversation. As, as you all know, uh, in the 20th century, this country made a resolution to abolish racial segregation. We came to understand, it wasn't easy, but we came to understand that racial segregation was wrong, that it was immoral, that it was harmful to both African Americans and to whites, and that it was unconstitutional. Uh, civil rights lawyers began <clears throat> in the 1930s challenging uh, segregation in law schools. Uh, they chose to start with law schools because they thought that if judges couldn't understand anything else, they might be able to understand that you couldn't get a good legal education in a segregated law school. And then they used that precedent to challenge segregation in colleges and universities. Colleges and universities were segregated uh, before this attack on segregation in the 20th century. And then they went on, as, as you all know, uh, to use those precedents to challenge segregation in elementary and secondary schools, legal segregation, in the Brown versus Board of Education case that was decided in 1954. And then the Brown case gave impetus to a burgeoning civil rights movement that by the time it was finished, at the end of the 1960s, had abolished segregation and everything from buses uh, to lunch counters to public accommodations to all kinds to water fountains to parks. And yet, we've left untouched the biggest segregation of all, which is, as Sam indicated, that every metropolitan area in this country is residentially segregated. Uh, I've lived in many of them. Every one that I've lived in has been characterized by neighborhoods that were white or almost all white, or African-American or almost all African-American. Uh, it's true of every metropolitan area. And we all take this for granted, even though we had this commitment as a nation uh, in the 20th century to abolish racial segregation. How is it that although we embarked on a crusade to abolish racial segregation in the 20th century, 
that we've left untouched this biggest segregation of all, which, as Sam alluded to, underlies so many, if not most, of the serious social and economic problems we face in this country. Because we have residentially segregated neighborhoods, as you just heard, we have a, an achievement gap in schools because if you take children who are socially and economically disadvantaged and who come to school uh, with problems that interfere with their learning and you concentrate them in single classrooms and schools, it's inconceivable that those classrooms and schools can generate the kind of achievement that you could get if children came to school healthy and well-rested and um, from unstressful economic situations and stable homes. Racial segregation in, of neighborhoods underlies the enormous disparities we have in health by race in this country, with African Americans have shorter life expectancies, greater tendency towards heart disease and um, other serious diseases. That's largely the result, not entirely, but largely the result of the fact that so many African Americans are living in less healthy neighborhoods, less healthy air, less access to grocery stores with fresh food, more stress. The violence that we've all observed and watched with horror uh, in places like uh, Ferguson or Milwaukee or uh, St. Paul or Baltimore in the last few years exists only because we're concentrating the most disadvantaged young men without access to good jobs or transportation to get to good jobs or opportunity or schools that can generate high achievement. We're, generating, we're, we're concentrating those in, in single neighborhoods where they uh, engage in oppositional behavior, where they attract attention of the police who then overreact and we get the kind of uh, cycle of violence and mass incarceration that results, all because of seg residential segregation. And I'd, I'd add that residential segregation also underlies the dangerous, dangerous, horrifying political polarization of this country today because that political polarization runs in good part along racial lines. And how can African Americans and whites ever understand each other if they have such, live so far distant? and have so little understanding of each other's life experiences, how can we ever develop a common democratic community when we're living such different kinds of lives? So with all these enormous problems that result from racial segregation, and we spend a lot of time dealing with the symptoms, you know, we have school reform programs, we have public health programs, we try criminal justice reforms, all of them doomed to failure because we don't address the underlying cause, which is residential segregation. How is it that we've not done that? Well, I think part of the reason is that it's harder to desegregate neighborhoods than it was to desegregate lunch counters. When we desegregated lunch counters in the 1960s, uh, the next day you could sit at any lunch counter. But if we were to desegregate neighborhoods, the next day things wouldn't look much different. And so because it's hard, all of us, and I don't mean just some of us, I mean all of us, whites, blacks, liberals, conservatives, uh, northerners, southerners, all of us have adopted a rationalization to justify our inaction, our failure 
to complete the work of the civil rights movement, to leave it, in fact, mostly undone. And that rationalization is um, a myth that we give a name to, and we all of us use this name. We say that unlike the segregations that we abolished in the 20th century, segregation of neighborhoods is de facto. It's de facto segregation. You know, it just happened in fact, not in law. It wasn't created by government, it wasn't created by regulation, it wasn't created by policy. It just sort of happened. White families wouldn't sell homes to African Americans in white neighborhoods or real estate agents or banks, mortgage issuers uh, discriminated in their private capacity against African Americans. Or maybe it's just that African Americans and whites just both prefer to live among each other of the same race. Or maybe it's because, on average, uh, African Americans have lower incomes than whites and can't afford to move to middle class communities. All of these individual, private, uh, non-governmental decisions, attitudes, activities, is what's created residential segregation. and. What happened by accident has to unhappen by accident. Of course, we don't think it's a good thing. None of us like the idea that we're an apartheid society, uh, a society that's veering towards uh, the end of democracy. None of us like it. But we say there's nothing we can do about it. Um, well, I um, used to be, before I began this work, uh, almost 10 years ago, an education policy writer. This is what I wrote about. Uh, I didn't know much about housing. In fact, I didn't know anything about housing. I still don't know much about housing by being forced to learn more about it every day. Um, but I was writing about education policy, and so in the course of my work, I read a Supreme Court decision that was issued in 2007. The Supreme Court had looked at two school districts, Louisville, Kentucky, and Seattle, Washington, both of which um, had a very, very token, very token trivial school desegregation plans. Uh, they had a, each of them had a plan where students uh, or their parents could choose the school that they would attend within the district, uh, but if the choice was going to exacerbate racial segregation, that choice would not be honored in favor of the choice of a child that would help to desegregate the school. So if you had a school in Louisville or Seattle with, uh, say, that was all white or mostly all white, and there was one place left in that school after children had made their choices, and of that one place left, uh, both a black and a white child applied for it, uh, the black child would be given some preference. Um, trivial, trivial plan. Um, can't imagine how trivial it is for one place to be left in the school and you have to choose between a black and a white child, but the Supreme Court of the United States was outraged by this policy in those two school districts. It said that the schools in Louisville and Seattle, the, the, the opinion was written by Chief Justice John Roberts, the schools in Louisville and Seattle are segregated because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. Well, I thought that was a pretty wise observation on the Chief Justice's part. In fact, that is today the main reason why schools are segregated. Schools, in fact, are more segregated today than they've been at any time in the last 45 years. But then he went on to say that the, 
not only the schools are segregated because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated, but he said the neighborhoods in Louisville and Seattle are segregated de facto because of the kinds of private actions and attitudes and activities that I just described. Not by government, not by law, not by regulation, not by public policy. And he said under the Constitution, if you have de facto segregation, it's a violation of the Constitution to take conscious steps to desegregate. It violates the 14th Amendment to desegregate, according to the Chief Justice. Only, he said, if you have what he calls de jure segregation, segregation by law and public policy, then it would be a civil rights violation. Then it would violate the 5th and the 14th Amendments. And if you have segregation that was created by government that violates the Constitution, then, of course, we're obligated to remedy it. Well, I read this decision, and reading this decision, I recalled <coughs> excuse me, a uh, case I'd read about some years earlier in Louisville, Kentucky, where a white homeowner in a suburb of Louisville called Shively, single-family home suburb, uh, had a friend who lived, an African-American friend who lived in the center city of Louisville. And the friend was a decorated Navy veteran. He um, had a, a good job, a wife and a child, and he wanted to move to a suburban community, be a healthier community, a place where his child would have access to schools with higher achievement. Um, and nobody would sell him a home in a suburban community in Louisville. And so the white homeowner, uh, the, fr the white friend, bought a second house, a second home, in the suburb of Louisville, uh, Shively. And he resold it to his African-American friend. And when the African-American family moved in, uh, a mob surrounded the home, uh, a white mob, uh, protected by the police. Uh, the mob threw rocks through the windows. And although it had police protection, the police couldn't identify a single perpetrator. It firebombed. It dynamited the home. And when this riot was over, the state of Kentucky arrested, tried, uh, convicted, and jailed with a 15-year sentence the white homeowner for sedition. And I said to myself, you know, this doesn't sound much like de facto segregation. It may be that uh, Chief Justice John Roberts uh, needs to learn a little bit of history. And I began to wonder whether this was an isolated instance, this use of the courts and the police and the, the entire criminal justice system to enforce racial boundaries, whether this was isolated, or whether there were more instances like this, or whether indeed uh, there was a systematic policy on the part of government to create segregation. And in the course of my investigation, it resulted in this book eventually, I concluded that uh, we do have a de jure system of residential segregation. The racial boundaries that exist in every metropolitan area in this country were created by government, by ex racially explicit government policy, uh, designed to ensure that African Americans and whites could not live near one another. Uh, as such, it, in John Roberts' own terms, is a civil rights violation. It's a violation of the Constitution. I know that's hard to imagine, but this, the residential patterns in this city and in every city in the country are a violation of the Constitution. They were created by government with deliberate racial intent. And as a violation of the Constitution, we are obligated 
Even John Roberts would agree. If it violates the Constitution, we're obligated to remedy it. And all of us as American citizens are ignoring our responsibilities as American citizens if we don't take steps to remedy it. Well, let me um, spend a few minutes with you this evening describing some of the major policies that the federal government followed to ensure that African Americans and whites could not live near one another in any metropolitan area in the country. Um, there were many of these policies. Uh, the federal government uh, was not the only one. It was state and local governments as well. Um, the, um, but I'll talk about two of the major ones. One I want to talk about is public housing. Uh, now, all of us think we know what public housing is. It's a place where poor people live. It's a place where lots of single mothers with children, uh, lots of those young men I talked about without access to jobs in the formal economy. Uh, that's not how public housing began in this country. Public housing began in this country during the New Deal, during the Roosevelt administration and the Depression, as a program not for the poor, but for working families. You know, we all talk about the unemployment and the Depression, and it was enormous, it was 25%. But we forget that 75% of the people were employed. And there was a housing shortage, and the public housing program of the New Deal was designed to provide housing for that 75%. Who could afford to pay for housing? They could afford to rent housing, but there was no housing being built. So there was a housing shortage. The Public Works Administration, one of the first New Deal agencies, built public housing across much of the country. It didn't come uh, this far because in those days, uh, policymakers didn't think really the country uh, mattered much west of the Mississippi. Um, you know, the, the farthest west baseball team was the St. Louis Browns, so uh, you can't blame them. But um, they built public housing uh, across much of the country, uh, and everywhere, the New Deal segregated the housing, building separate projects for African Americans and whites, frequently creating segregation in communities that had previously been integrated. Now that may surprise you, but uh, the reality is that in the mid and early 20th century, we had many, many integrated neighborhoods in this country. Um, uh, we would be stunned if we could be somehow transported back to the last century to see the extent of residential integration that existed in metropolitan downtown areas. The reason was simple. Um, most jobs were located in downtown areas because industry, warehouses, uh, and the, the services that supported them all had to be located near either a railroad terminal or a deep water port, a river, because that's how they got their parts or shipped their final products. And so if you had a downtown factory district or industrial district, where there were African-American workers and Irish immigrant workers and Italian immigrant workers and Jewish workers and rural migrants from the South. Uh, they all had to be living in the broadly the same neighborhoods because they didn't have automobiles to get to work. They had to be able to walk to work or take short streetcar rides uh, in many cases. Uh, so there were many integrated neighborhoods, but the Public Works Administration demolished housing in those neighborhoods, slum housing, integrated slum housing, and built separate projects for whites and blacks. And in my book, I talk about the great African-American poet, novelist, uh, Langston Hughes. Uh, Langston Hughes uh, wrote in his autobiography, it was called The Big C, how he grew up in an integrated downtown Cleveland neighborhood. We don't think of downtown Cleveland as being integrated uh, today, but he grew up in a downtown integrated Cleveland neighborhood. 
He said in high school his best friend was Polish. He dated a Jewish girl. This was not um, shocking in that period of American history. The Public Works Administration came into that very neighborhood of Cleveland where Langston Hughes had grown up, demolished housing, and built two separate projects, one for whites and one for African Americans, and with other segregated projects elsewhere in the Cleveland area, reinforced and created a segregated pattern that's with us today. And this, as I said, was done everywhere in the country. In my book, I like to talk about uh, self-satisfied neighborhoods, uh, places, uh, not just the Bay Area. Uh, I don't want to pick only on the Bay Area, but I do want to pick on the Bay Area. <laughs> but um, self-satisfied places, like, for example, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. You've heard of that place. Um, the area between Harvard and MIT, uh, called the Central Square neighborhood, was a fully integrated neighborhood in the 1930s, about half black and half white. Uh, the Public Works Administration demolished housing there to build two separate projects, one for African Americans and one for whites. Uh, the government built public housing projects, again, always for working families, not for poor people. Elsewhere in the Boston metropolitan area, always segregated, created a, a segregated pattern in that metropolis that otherwise would never have developed as it did. Um, during World War II, the government's activities to create segregation uh, uh, were magnified enormously. Hundreds of thousands of workers flocked to centers of defense production, centers of war production during the war, to take jobs in war industries that hadn't existed during the Depression. They overwhelmed the communities that um, they were uh, uh, coming to. Um, in the book, as I say, I, I, I like to talk about self-satisfied places, and here I do talk about the Bay Area. Uh, Richmond, just across the bay, was the center of shipbuilding in World War II. Uh, it was a small community. It was all white, uh, 20,000 people living in Richmond before the war. Uh, the Kaiser shipyards were built there, and uh, by the end of the war, the, the employment in the Kaiser shipyards had gone from zero up to 100,000. And many of these workers uh, brought uh, uh, wives and, and uh, children with them. So the population growth influx was about 300,000. I know before um, we came into the auditorium outside, I was talking to someone who was a city planner. And um, I don't know how a city planner plans the growth of a city from 20,000 to 300,000 in just four years. It's not conceivable. The only way that this population could have been um, uh, uh, absorbed was if the government built housing, if the government built housing for the war workers who were flocking to Richmond, and it did. Now, uh, before I tell you about the government housing in Richmond, I want to point out that unlike the East Coast cities or the Midwestern cities, there wasn't a very large, substantial African-American population uh, here in the Bay Area or on the West Coast prior to World War II. Uh, historians like to divide the uh, migration of African-Americans from the South uh, to the North and, and the West uh, in two periods. The first great migration uh, to places like Chicago and Detroit, uh, Cleveland even, uh, Pittsburgh, took place in World War I and after. But the second great migration uh, that affected California took place only at the beginning of World War II. Uh, there were some African-Americans living here before then. Uh, 
A number had come during the gold rush, for example, and there were others who had settled in Oakland, in an integrated community in Oakland, because uh, the railroads would only hire African Americans as Pullman car porters. And so uh, the porters for the Transcontinental Railroad were, were living in Oakland. But aside from that, there were very few African Americans living here. Um, the federal government built housing for the war workers during World War II and segregated it, creating separate projects for African Americans and whites. Creating, you can say with confidence, creating, not simply reinforcing because there was no segregation here before because there weren't substantial numbers of African Americans. Creating a segregated pattern that otherwise would never have existed. The, um, uh, in Richmond, the government built uh, separate projects. They built up projects for the African American shipyard workers along the railroad tracks in the industrial area. It was shabby, temporary housing because the city of Richmond announced that uh, uh, any African Americans who came to that area uh, uh, to work in the shipyards during the war would have to leave at the end of the war. And it built projects for the white workers, the white migrant workers, in the residential areas of, of Richmond and Albany and Berkeley, um, where, where um, uh, near shopping areas and, and other amenities in those communities. And the same thing was true here in San Francisco. The, the government built five public housing projects for war workers here in San Francisco itself. Uh, four of them were for whites only. Uh, one was for African Americans. It was located in the Western Edition because uh, the Western Edition was uh, a place, the Fillmore District, where a few African Americans were already living because when uh, Japanese Americans had been um, rounded up and, and deported to internment camps during the war. There were vacancies, and African Americans began to fill some of those vacancies. So the government figured that if that was a, a place where some African Americans were living, it would put the project for African Americans there to create an African American ghetto in the city of San Francisco, and that's how it developed. This was done all over the country. Um, after World War II, there was still an enormous housing shortage in the country. Uh, not only had um, no housing been built by the private sector during the Depression, the only housing that was being built was by the Public Works Administration and other government agencies that I mentioned earlier. During World War II, it was actually illegal to use construction materials to build uh, housing for civilians unless they were working in war plants. And then after World War II, there were millions of uh, war veterans coming back and, and needing housing uh, at the end of the war. And um, they had no place to live. There was no housing had been built. So President Truman, who succeeded Roosevelt as president upon Roosevelt's death, um, proposed a vast expansion of the National Public Housing Program. And remember, we're still talking about housing primarily for working class families, not for poor people. People who could pay the full cost of the housing and their rent, and were doing so, but for whom no housing was available. Conservatives in Congress wanted to defeat uh, Truman's public housing program. They wanted to defeat it not for racial reasons, because it was segregated, and they were quite comfortable with that. Uh, they wanted to defeat it not because they didn't like poor people, but because uh, there were no poor people living in public housing. This was for working class families. They wanted to defeat it because they thought that public housing was socialistic, and that uh, the private sector should be building housing for the returning war veterans. Uh, of course, the private sector wasn't doing it, but that was their view. 
And so they came up with a legislative device, which we refer to as a poison pill strategy. Some of you may have heard that term. Uh, a poison pill strategy is a strategy that opponents of uh, legislation in Congress employ to defeat the legislation. They propose an amendment to the bill in issue uh, that can as assemble a majority. The amendment passes attached to the bill, but then when the full bill is considered, that amendment makes the entire bill unpalatable to a different majority and the bill goes down to defeat. So conservatives in Congress in 1949 proposed an amendment to the 1949 Housing Act that went as follows. From now on, all public housing has to be integrated. No more segregation in public housing. No more racial discrimination in public housing. It was a cynical proposal. They didn't want public housing at all. But they planned for, to vote for the integration amendment. They assumed and hoped that northern liberal Democrats would join them in voting for the integration amendment. The integration amendment would then pass, and when the full bill came up before Congress as an integrated public housing program, the conservatives would flip and vote against the bill, the final bill. They would be joined by southern Democrats who wanted segregated public housing but not integrated public housing. That would create a new majority, and the bill would go down to defeat. So liberals in Congress had to make a choice, and I'm telling this story because it's a choice that we face still today. Do we create public housing was the choice that they faced at the price of having it segregated, or do we insist on integration and have no housing at all? And it was a difficult choice because the housing shortage was enormous. The need for affordable housing was enormous. So they had to decide what to do. And liberals in Congress uh, decided that they would campaign against the integration amendment. They were led by two senators, the leading civil rights advocates in the United States Senate, Mr. Civil Rights, Hubert Humphrey. Some of you may remember his name. Um, and uh, an even more prominent liberal in the Senate at that time, Senator Paul Douglas of Illinois, led the campaign against the integration amendment. Senator Douglas got up on the floor of the Senate and gave a speech in which he said something along the lines of, I want to say to my Negro friends that you'll be better off with segregated housing that will result if this integration amendment is defeated than you will be if we pass the integration amendment and you get no housing at all. Now, he was right. That would have been the consequence of defeating uh, the integration, of, of passing the integration amendment, but I'm not sure he was right that we were better off because, as I indicated earlier, we have paid an enormous price for our decision to maintain residential segregation in this country. And I mentioned the price we pay in education and health and criminal justice and politics. That's the price we've paid for this devil's bargain that Paul Douglas and Hubert Humphrey made and that many others of us have made since. Well, they persuaded their colleagues to vote against the integration amendment. The integration amendment was defeated, and the 1949 Housing Act was passed as an ongoing segregated program. You know, 1949 doesn't seem like so long ago to me. Maybe, uh, maybe some of you, this seems like history, but uh, it was just the other day. And uh, the federal government used that vote in Congress, that vote against 
integration in, in the public housing program. They use that vote as their justification for segregating all federal housing programs, not just public housing, for the next 15 years. Well, under that 1949 Housing Act um, segregated program, the vast, uh, large public housing projects that we all became familiar with that became to symbolize public housing were built. Places like Robert Taylor Homes or Cabrini Green in Chicago, you've heard of those, or uh, maybe the best known one is St. Louis, uh, pruitt Igo. Uh, pruitt Igo is actually two projects. Pruitt was for African Americans, Igo was for whites. And very shortly after this and other projects were built, in public housing all across the country, a development occurred which was quite surprising. And that was that the white projects, like Igo in St. Louis, developed large numbers of vacancies. And the black projects, like Pruitt, had long waiting lists. Eventually, the white projects became virtually depopulated. It became untenable to have a, a, a city where, uh, for city officials to have two projects, one of which was virtually empty and the other of which has long waiting lists. So eventually, the public housing projects for whites were opened up to African Americans. They gradually filled with mostly African Americans. At about the same time, industry left the cities. Remember, it had to be located downtown in, in uh, the early 20th century because they needed access to either ships or, or trains to ship final products or get parts. But now the highways were being built. Uh, they could ship and get parts by truck. And so industry moved out of the cities uh, where they had more space, where they no longer had to have elevator plants, uh, could uh, have continuous assembly lines. And the result was that the residents of public housing and other residents of these urban areas no longer had access to the good jobs that they had when they were paying the full cost of rent in public housing. So public housing started to be subsidized. Once it began to be subsidized, government stopped investing in it. It stopped uh, maintaining it. Uh, the projects deteriorated, and they became the kind of urban public slums that we associate with public housing. But that's not how public housing began. It's not how public housing has to be. Well, the question that I, I assume is in your minds now is, um, and should be if, uh, if you haven't read the book, um, is uh, how, why did all these vacancies develop in the white projects? And that was because of another federal program which was even more powerful in creating segregation in this country. And that was a program of the Federal Housing Administration, a federal agency that was designed to suburbanize the entire white population, ur white urban population, into single-family homes in the suburbs. This was a racially explicit program. It wasn't a program to create suburbs that had the unintended consequence of creating white suburbs. This was a racially explicit program of the federal government designed to create all white suburbs to get whites out of cities and leave African Americans in place. Um, many of the suburbs across the country that you're familiar with in this area and everywhere were created under this program. Uh, here in the Bay Area, um, Westlake and Daly City was probably the best known. That was uh, built by Henry Dolger, uh, the same builder of Sunset Village uh, here in the city, or across the Bay, San Leandro or San Lorenzo uh, uh, were, were projects built like this by the Federal Housing Administration on a racial basis. 
On the other side of the country, uh, Levittown, the biggest one of all, uh, east of New York City, uh, was built. 17,000 homes in Levittown, 15,000 in, in Westlake. Uh, Los Angeles became the symbol of suburbanization in the country in the 1950s and 60s. And uh, communities like Lakewood or, or Panorama City or Westchester were all built by the Federal Housing Administration as white-only programs. A builder like Levitt in, in New York, Levittown, or, or Henry Dolger here in the Bay Area, um, uh, or Henry J. Kaiser, who built Westchester in Los Angeles uh, after he was no longer building ships for the war, uh, they could never have assembled the capital to build 15, 17,000 homes in one place. What bank would be crazy enough to lend Henry Dolger the money to build 15,000 homes for which he had no buyers? Uh, the answer is no bank would be that crazy. He couldn't build a development uh, with private money. The only way that Levitt or Dolger could build those developments was by going to the Federal Housing Administration, submitting their plans for the developments, making a commitment to the Federal Housing Administration that they would never sell a home to an African American, agreeing to place a clause in the deed of every home required by the Federal Housing Administration that prohibited resale to African Americans or rental to African Americans. And on that basis, the white nooses around every metropolitan area are created of white suburbs of working class families uh, that um, left uh, African Americans residing either in public housing or in the private rental market within uh, cities. The subsidy was enormous. Uh, white working class families with this program uh, were able to leave, say, public housing uh, uh, and pay less than their monthly carrying costs for housing for single-family homes with a VA mortgage or an FA mortgage than they were paying for rent in public housing. And if they were veterans, and most, many of them were, uh, they were, had no down payment. Those homes that white working-class families uh, bought in the um, uh, suburban communities were created by the FHA and the VA, uh, sold at the time for about eight, nine, ten thousand um, dollars I have a, a lot of information about Westlake and Daly City in the book. Uh, that the same thing was true in Levittown. In today's money, that's about $100,000. Uh, any working class family can afford to buy a home for $100,000. That's only twice national median income. Uh, make monthly payments, uh, um, mortgage payments, amortized, um, easily affordable. Now today, those homes, as you all know, sell for $300,000, $500,000 or more. The six times national median income, seven times national median income, not affordable to working class families of either race. The white families who bought those homes uh, with Federal Housing Administration and VA subsidies gained over the next few generations, uh, you can do the arithmetic, uh, $200,000, $400,000 in appreciation and equity and wealth. That's the main way that the American families gain what wealth they have is the equity they have in their homes. It's only the very rich who get wealth by playing the stock market. Uh, the rest of us get home equity as the way of gaining wealth. Uh, the white families use those, that wealth to send their children to college. They use it to take care of medical emergencies. They use it to um, weather unemployment bouts. 
Uh, they use it to finance their retirements or subsidize their retirements. And they use it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren who then had down payments for their own homes. African Americans who are required by federal policy to remain renters in either public housing or in the private market got none of that wealth. This was racially explicit federal policy. The Federal Housing Administration had a manual that was issued to appraisers across the country whose job it was to evaluate the applications of developers for federal subsidy, federal guarantees of bank loans. The manual prohibited those guarantees from being extended to any developer who would sell to African Americans. The manual even said, and I'm quoting now, uh, even said that you couldn't uh, extend a guarantee to a developer of an all-white development that was near where African Americans lived because it ran, quote, the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial elements. That's what the federal manual said. There's nothing de facto about this. This is a, a federal policy that's as unconstitutional, as unconstitutional as the segregation of water fountains or pools or restaurants, and yet we've done nothing about it. The result of this policy is that today, while African-American incomes, there's a gap of about 60%, 60% of white incomes on average. African-American wealth is 10% of white wealth. Now, you'd think that people with similar incomes would be able to save similar amounts of money and have similar wealth, but that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 10% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that we, and I mean all of us, have never remedied. It's a civil rights violation. Well, in the course of um, writing this book, uh, as I say, I, I describe many, many other policies at the federal, state, and local levels that uh, contributed to this systematic policy of creating segregation, but I also cause myself to examine the textbooks that are used in American high schools everywhere in the country today to teach American history. I wanted to see how they dealt with this problem. And what I found was that every textbook lies about it. Um, the most commonly used American history textbook in the country when I was doing this research, and this was probably you know, four years ago now, uh, was something called The Americans. I assume it's still the most popular textbook. 1,200 pages. In those 1,200 pages, there was one paragraph uh, which was subheaded discrimination in the North. In that one paragraph, there was one sentence on housing, and the sentence uh, read as follows. In the North, African Americans found themselves forced into segregated housing. That's it. You know, they woke up one day, they looked out the window, and they said, hey, you know, here we are in segregated housing. Uh, you know, I, as you know, I, I write books. I know what uh, that publishers uh, devote a lot of uh, money and energy to um, hiring copy editors to look out for passive voice sentences, but uh, this is one they missed. It's a crime. It's a crime. Because if the next generation doesn't learn this history any better than we've learned it, they're going to be in this poor position to remedy it as we've, we are, if we've been. And so one of the things I, and I do a lot of, of lectures about this history now because the book has um, gotten some attention. And one of the things I always tell the people that I speak to is that this is something that everybody can take hold of. 
everybody lives in the community and has children or grandchildren and uh, nieces and nephews who attend local schools. We know teachers and principals and superintendents and school board members. And we can begin to insist that this history be taught accurately. Uh, because as I say, the next generation has to learn it. If we're going to build a new civil rights movement that's going to take up the cause of the last civil rights movement left untouched. There are many, many policies that we could follow to um, uh, begin the process of desegregation of this country, to end the enormous uh, consequences of segregation in health and in education and in criminal justice and in politics. Um, the policies to desegregate are easy to think about, easy to, to, to conceive. What's difficult is developing the political will and the consensus to do so. <clears throat> and that, to me, seems to me to be our first task. We need to learn this history. We need to accept, as American citizens, the obligation to remedy civil rights violations that were created in our name by our government. And um, we need also, of course, to engage in the kind of activities that previous civil rights movements engaged in, whether it's demonstrations or marches or civil disobedience or protests about the ongoing maintenance of racial segregation. We currently um, maintain some policies that uh, perpetuate and reinforce segregation, even though they're no longer racially explicit. One of them, uh, well, we'll talk about a couple that, uh, that you're all familiar with. Uh, you've heard mentioned before of the, the, the tax credit program that the um, US Treasury Department uh, administers uh, for developers of low-income housing. That tax credit is almost entirely, not entirely, but almost entirely used to build low-income housing in already low-income segregated neighborhoods. Because low-income developers, well-intentioned, are making the same choice that Paul Douglas and Hubert Humphrey made. It's easier to build low-income housing in already low-income segregated neighborhoods. If you try to build it in high-opportunity neighborhoods, in neighborhoods where there is good jobs and access to transportation and grocery stores with healthy food and clean air, you'll run into opposition. You'll have to have a lot of community meetings explaining why you're bringing colored people into their community. Um, seriously. Um, so it's easier to build this in, in um, already low-income segregated neighborhoods and to reinforce segregation in the process. The same thing is true of the Housing Choice Voucher Program, the Section 8 program. It, too, is designed to reinforce segregation, not intentionally, but most Section 8 vouchers are usable only in already low-income segregated neighborhoods. Even though in California, landlords can't refuse to rent to a Section 8 voucher holder, it's not enforced, and landlords turn away people who want to apart um, in, in middle-class neighborhoods who want to rent apartments with Section 8 vouchers, but also the vouchers are designed, they're structured in a way that they're only usable in, in low-income neighborhoods because uh, the rents are higher in higher-opportunity neighborhoods, and the voucher amounts are not calculated to take that into account. So that's another program that would be easy to design if uh, uh, we wanted to really make an effort to desegregate the country. And then we have uh, enormous uh, subsidies for single-family homeowners still in these all-white communities. Um, the biggest federal housing program today is the mortgage interest deduction that is uh, given to homeowners of single-family homes, and most of them in, in 
segregated white communities. Uh, we don't need to subsidize segregation in that way. We can tell communities that uh, homeowners in their community will not be entitled to take the mortgage interest deduction so long as that community refuses to take steps to desegregate, whether by reforming its zoning laws so it don't, they don't um, uh, prohibit construction of townhouses or apartments or, or even single-family homes on small lot sizes, or by accepting uh, low-income housing tax credit programs, um, or by welcoming um, minority families into the community. We don't have to do it in a punitive way. We could take those uh, mortgage interest deductions and put them in escrow and return them to the homeowners when their communities took steps to desegregate. Uh, that would be a, a, a useful policy. But, you know, so I say the policy, the way it's, or take, uh, I'll give you the most extreme example. I don't think it's extreme, but the country would. We could subsidize African-American families to buy homes and communities to buy homes and communities that are not affordable to them now, but that would have been affordable to their parents and grandparents had they been permitted to buy them when they were constructed. Well, like I say, the policies are not hard. I, I want to emphasize this. The policies are not hard to imagine. What's hard is to develop the political will to do it, and that's a job that all of us have to do uh, before we begin to um, tilt at windmills to enact policies that can't possibly get adopted. We need to educate our neighbors. We need to educate our church, fellow churchmen and women. We need to go into our schools and make sure that the history is taught accurately. And we need to um, create a new civil rights movement to pick up with the last one left off. So I think I've gone on probably too long, and I'll stop here. But thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>